If I had to put in priority order all of the things that sparked me to start this channel, the most important issue would be the callous disregard of the liberal class for the plight of the working poor. Sometimes I'm told that the people that need to pile into the streets and strike and start shit are not going to be watching my channel. More often, the people paying attention have college degrees and are probably way too comfortable to ever want to pile into the streets for real. So then I look in the mirror and I tell myself, are you just pandering to affluent people? And then my irascible self looks back and says, no, I am trying to hold comfy people accountable. I'm trying to poke them and prod them and wake them up to the fact that heretofore they have never given an actual shit about the plight of the working poor. Love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Phil Oakes and George Carlin have been the steadfast center of my political philosophy all along. But Chris Hedges and Glenn Greenwald are right up there with them. In the end, we will all pay for the cowardice of the liberal class by Chris Hedges. This is from Common Dreams. It says it's published by Shearpost. I'm going to have to look into Shearpost and see what it is. No time like the present. I guess it's a sort of fancy blog by Robert Shear. Here's his Facebook page if you want to like it. This is Shearpost.com. It's visually engaging. Looks like a great place. The byline says, No one should take them, liberals, seriously. They stand for nothing. They fight for nothing. The photo caption under Kamala and Joe embracing each other from a distance reads, The blame lies not only with the goons and racists on the right, the corporatists who pillage the country and the corrupt ruling elite that does their bidding, but a feckless liberal class that found standing up for its beliefs too costly. Me too. Liberals who express dismay, or more bizarrely, a fevered hope about the corporatists and imperialists selected to fill the positions in the Biden administration are the court jesters of our political burlesque. They long ago sold their soul and abandoned their most basic principles to line up behind a bankrupt Democratic Party. They chant with every election cycle the mantra of the least worst and sit placidly on the sidelines as a Bill Clinton or a Barack Obama and the Democratic Party leadership betray every issue they claim to support. The only thing that mattered to liberals in the presidential race, once again, was removing a Republican, this time Donald Trump, from office. This the liberals achieved, but their Faustian bargain in election after election has shredded their credibility. They are ridiculed, not only among right-wing Trump supporters, but by the hierarchy of the Democratic Party that has been captured by corporate power. No one can or should take liberals seriously. They stand for nothing. They fight for nothing. The cost is too onerous. And so the liberals do what they always do, chatter endlessly about political and moral positions they refuse to make any sacrifices to achieve. Liberals, largely comprised of the professional managerial class that dutifully recycles and shops for organic produce and is concentrated on the two coasts, have profited from the ravages of neoliberalism. They seek to endow it with a patina of civility, but their routine and public humiliation has ominous consequences. It not only exposes the liberal class as hollow and empty, it discredits the liberal democratic values they claim to uphold. 
Liberals should have abandoned the Democratic Party when Bill Clinton and political hacks such as Biden transformed the Democratic Party into the Republican Party and launched a war on traditional liberal values and left-wing populism. They should have defected by the millions to support Ralph Nader and other Green Party candidates. This defection, as Nader understood, was the only tactic that could force the Democrats to adopt parts of a liberal and left-wing agenda and save us from the slow-motion corporate coup d'etat. Fear is the real force behind political change, not oily promises of mutual goodwill. Short of this pressure, this fear, especially with labor unions destroyed, there is no hope. Now we will reap the consequences of the liberal class's moral and political cowardice. The Democratic Party elites revel in taunting liberals as well as the left-wing populists who preach class warfare and supported Bernie Sanders. How are we supposed to interpret the appointment of Antony Blinken, one of the architects of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and supporter of the apartheid state of Israel as Secretary of State? Or John Kerry, who championed the massive expansion of domestic oil and gas production largely through fracking and, according to Barack Obama's memoir, worked doggedly to convince those concerned about the climate crisis to offer up concessions on subsidies for the nuclear power industry and the opening of additional U.S. coastlines to offshore oil drilling as the new climate policy czar? Or Brian Deese, the executive who is in charge of the climate portfolio at BlackRock, which invests heavily in fossil fuels, including coal, and who served as a former Obama economic advisor who advocated austerity measures to run the White House's economic policy? Or Neera Tandon, for director of the Office of Management and Budget, who as president of the Center for American Progress raised millions in dark money from Silicon Valley and Wall Street while relentlessly ridiculing Bernie Sanders and his supporters on cable news and social media, and who proposed a plank in the Democratic platform calling for bombing Iran. The Biden administration resembles the ineffectual German government formed by Franz von Papen in 1932 that sought to recreate the Ancien Régime, a utopian conservatism that ensured Germany's drift into fascism. Biden, bereft like von Papen of new ideas and programs, will eventually be forced to employ the brutal tools Biden as a senator was so prominent in creating to maintain social control wholesale surveillance, a corrupt judicial system, the world's largest prison system, and police that have been transformed into lethal paramilitary units of internal occupation. Those that resist as social unrest mounts will be attacked as agents of a foreign power, ding, 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 and censored, as many already are being censored, ding, 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 including through algorithms and deplatforming on social media. The most ardent and successful dissidents, such as Julian Assange, will be criminalized, if not killed. The shock troops of the state, already ideologically bonded with the neo-fascists on the right, will hunt down and wipe out an enfeebled and often phantom left, as we saw in the chilling state assassination by U.S. Marshals of the Antifa activist Michael Reinhold, who was unarmed and standing outside an apartment complex in Lacey, Washington in September when he was shot multiple times. I witnessed this kind of routine state terror during the war in El Salvador. Reinhold allegedly killed Aaron Danielson, a member of the far-right group Patriot Prayer, during a pro-Trump rally in Portland, Oregon in August. 
Compare the gunning down of Reinhold by federal agents to the coddling of Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old accused of killing two protesters and injuring a third on August 25th in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Police officers, moments before the shooting, are seen on video thanking Rittenhouse and other armed right-wing militia members for coming to the city and handing them bottles of water. Rittenhouse is also seen in a video walking toward police with his hands up after his shooting spree as protesters yell that he had shot several people. Police nevertheless allow him to leave. Rittenhouse's killings have been defended by the right, including Trump. Rittenhouse, who has received hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations for his legal fees, has been released on $2 million bail. We stand on the cusp of a frightening authoritarianism. Social unrest, given a continuation of neoliberalism, the climate crisis, the siphoning off of diminishing resources to the bloated war machine, political stagnation and the failure to contain the pandemic and its economic fallout is almost certain. Absent a left-wing populism, a disenfranchised working class will line up, as it did with Trump, behind its counterfeit, a right-wing populism. The liberal elites will, if history is any guide, justify state repression as a response to social chaos in the name of law and order. That they too are on the Christian right and the corporate state's long list of groups to be neutralized will become evident to them when it is too late. It was Friedrich Ebert and the Social Democratic Party of Germany siding with the conservatives and nationalists that created the Freikorps, private paramilitary groups composed of demobilized soldiers and malcontents. The Freikorps ruthlessly crushed left-wing uprisings in Berlin, Bremen, Brunswick, Hamburg, Halle, Leipzig, Silesia, Thuringia, and the Ruhr, when the Freikorps was not gunning down left-wing populists in the streets and carrying out hundreds of political assassinations, including the murder of Walter Rathenau, the foreign minister, it was terrorizing civilians, looting, and pillaging. The Freikorps became the antecedent of the Nazi brownshirts led by Ernst Rehm, a former Freikorps commander. All the pieces are in place for our own descent into what I suspect will be a militarized, Christianized fascism. Political dysfunction, a bankrupt and discredited liberal class, massive and growing social inequality, a grotesquely rich and tone-deaf oligarchic elite, the fragmentation of the public into warring tribes, widespread food insecurity and hunger, chronic underemployment and unemployment and misery, all exacerbated by the failure of the state to cope with the crisis of the pandemic, combine with the rot of civil and political life to create a familiar cocktail leading to authoritarianism and fascism. Trump and the Republican Party, along with the shrill incendiary voices on right-wing media, play the role the anti-Semitic parties played in Europe during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The infusion of anti-Semitism into the political debate in Europe destroyed the political decorum and civility that is vital to maintaining a democracy. Racist tropes and hate speech, as in Weimar Germany, now poison our political discourse. Ridicule and cruel taunts are hurled back and forth. Lies are interchangeable with fact. Those who oppose us are demonized as human embodiments of evil. This poisonous discourse is only going to get worse, especially with millions of Trump supporters convinced the election was rigged and stolen. 
The German Social Democrat Kurt Schumacher in the 1930s said that fascism is a constant appeal to the inner swine in human beings and succeeds by mobilizing human stupidity. This mobilized stupidity, accompanied by what Rainer Maria Rilke called the evil effluvium from the human swamp, is being amplified and intensified in the siloed media chambers of the right. This hate-filled rhetoric eschews reality to cater to the desperate desire for emotional catharsis, for renewed glory and prosperity, and for acts of savage vengeance against the phantom enemies blamed for our national debacle. The constant barrage of vitriol and fabulous conspiracy theories will, I fear, embolden extremists to carry out political murder, not only of mainstream Democrats, Republicans Trump has accused of betrayal, such as Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and those targeted as part of the deep state, but also those at media outlets, such as CNN or the New York Times, that serve as propaganda arms of the Democratic Party. Once the Pandora's box of violence is opened, it is almost impossible to close. Martyrs on one side of the divide demand martyrs on the other side. Violence becomes the primary form of communication. And as Sebastian Hafner wrote, once the violence and readiness to kill that lies beneath the surface of human nature has been awakened and turned against other humans and even made into a duty, it is a simple matter to change the target. This, I suspect, is what is coming. The blame lies not only with the goons and racists on the right, the corporists who pillage the country and the corrupt ruling elite that does their bidding, but a feckless liberal class that found standing up for its beliefs too costly. The liberals will pay for their timidity and cowardice, but so will we. And now I bring you part of the article by Glenn Greenwald called The Hunter Biden Criminal Probe Bolsters a Chinese Scholar's Claim About Beijing's Influence with the Biden Administration. The reason I bring you this is that it's clear, painfully clear, that Hunter Biden was up to his elbows in political graft and corruption. Professor Di Dongsheng says China's close ties to Wall Street and its dealings with Hunter both enable it to exert more power now than it could under Trump. Hunter Biden acknowledged today, this was written December 9th, that he has been notified of an active criminal investigation into his tax affairs by the U.S. Attorney for Delaware. Among the numerous prongs of the inquiry, CNN reports, investigators are examining whether Hunter Biden and his associates violated tax and money laundering laws in business dealings in foreign countries, principally China. Documents relating to Hunter Biden's exploitation of his father's name to enrich himself and other relatives through deals with China were among the cash published in the week before the election by the New York Post, revelations censored by Twitter and Facebook and steadfastly ignored by most mainstream news outlets. That concerted repression effort by media outlets in Silicon Valley left it to right-wing outlets such as Fox News and The Daily Caller to report, which in turn meant that millions of Americans were kept in the dark before voting. But the just-revealed federal criminal investigation in Delaware is focused on exactly the questions which corporate media outlets refused to examine for fear that doing so would help Trump namely whether Hunter Biden engaged in illicit behavior in China and what impact that might have on his father's presidency. The allegations at the heart of this investigation compel an examination of a fascinating and at times disturbing speech at a major financial event held last week in Shanghai. In that speech, a Chinese scholar of political science and international finance, Di Dongsheng, 
insisted that Beijing will have far more influence in Washington under a Biden administration than it did with the Trump administration. The reason, Di said, is that China's ability to get its way in Washington has long depended upon its numerous powerful Wall Street allies. But those allies, he said, had difficulty controlling Trump, but will exert virtually unfettered power over Biden. That China cultivated extensive financial ties to Hunter Biden, Di explained, will be crucial for bolstering Beijing's influence even further. Skipping ahead, Referring to the Trump-era trade war between the two countries, Dee posed this question. Why did China and the U.S. used to be able to settle all kinds of issues between 1992, when Clinton became president, and 2016, when Obama left office? He then provided this answer. No matter what kind of crises we encountered, be it the Yinhe incident, when the U.S. interdicted a Chinese ship in the mistaken belief it carried chemical weapons for Iran, the bombing of the embassy, the 1999 bombing by the U.S. of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, or the crashing of the plane, the 2001 crashing of a U.S. military spy plane into a Chinese fighter jet, things were all solved in no time, like a couple do with their quarrels starting at the bedhead but ending at the bed end. We fixed everything in two months. What is the reason? I'm going to throw out something maybe a little bit explosive here. It's just because we have people at the top. We have our old friends who are at the top of America's core inner circle of power and influence. Who are these old friends of China's who are at the top of America's core inner circle of power and influence and have ensured that, in his words, for the past 30 years, 40 years, we have been utilizing the core power of the United States? Dee provided the answer. Wall Street, with whom the Chinese Community Party and Chinese industry maintain a close, multi-pronged and interdependent relationship. Since the 1970s, Wall Street had a very strong influence on the domestic and foreign affairs of the United States, Dee observed. Thus, we had a channel to rely on. To illustrate the point of how helpful Wall Street has been to Chinese interests in the U.S., Dee recounted a colorful story, albeit one fused with anti-Semitic tropes, of his unsuccessful efforts in 2015 to secure the preferred venue in Washington for the debut of President Xi Jinping's book about China. No matter how much he cajoled the owner of the iconic DC bookstore, Politics and Prose, or what he offered him, Dee was told it was unavailable, already promised to a different author. So he conveyed his failure to party leadership. But at the last minute, Dee recounts, he was told that the venue had suddenly changed its mind and agreed to host Xi's book event. This was the work, he said, of someone to whom party leaders introduced him. She is from a famous leading global financial institution on Wall Street, Dee said, the president of the Asia region of a top-level financial institution who speaks perfect Mandarin and has a sprawling home in Beijing. The point that China's close relationship with Wall Street has given it very powerful friends in the U.S. was so clear that it sufficed for him to coyly laugh with the audience, do you understand what I mean? If you do, put your hands together. They knowingly applauded. All of that provoked an obvious question. Why did this close relationship with Wall Street not enable China to exert the same influence during the Trump years, including avoiding a costly trade war? Dee explained that, aside from Wall Street's reduced standing due to the 2008 financial crisis, everything changed when Trump ascended to the presidency. 
Specifically, Wall Street could not control him the way it had previous presidents because of Trump's prior conflicts with Wall Street. But the problem is that after 2008, the status of Wall Street has declined, and more importantly, after 2016, Wall Street can't fix Trump. It's very awkward. Why? Trump had a previous soft default issue with Wall Street, so there was a conflict between them, but I won't go into details. I may not have enough time. So during the U.S.-China trade war, Wall Street tried to help, and I know that my friends on the U.S. side told me that they tried to help, but they couldn't do much. There's more after the part I'm about to read, but I'll end with this part. But as Dee shifted to his discussion of the new incoming administration, his tone palpably changed, becoming far more animated, excited, and optimistic. That's because a Biden presidency means a restoration of the old order, where Wall Street exerts great influence with the White House and can thus do China's bidding. But now we're seeing Biden was elected. The traditional elite, the political elite, the establishment, they're very close to Wall Street. So you see that, right? And Dee specifically referenced the work Beijing did to cultivate Hunter. Trump has been saying that Biden's son has some sort of global foundation. Have you noticed that? Who helped Biden's son build the foundations? Got it? There are a lot of deals inside all these. So there you have it, folks. That's what's going on now, and that's what's going to be going on for the foreseeable future, unless there's some sort of revolution. We'll close with a shout out to Do Dissidents, who wrote this article. The real persons of the year, Black Lives Matter protesters and essential workers. A few days back, I criticized Time Magazine for their fascistic tendencies, and I've done it here in this meme if you want to check it out. Time celebrates fascists, then and now. Keaton Weiss has his own angle on it. I understand that Time Magazine has a long history of making presidents elect their person of the year. This tradition started in 1932 when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected on the promise of a new deal to rebuild America's economy. To this day, FDR has been named person of the year, at the time man of the year, more than any other individual. And if you've been following this show, you can gather along with me that part of the reason is that FDR was a scion of the political and social elite. He was old money, and that's why Time Magazine liked him. And what we're discovering about Hunter Biden and China is another reason why Time Magazine would like him. And that's why they like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Wall Street loves Kamala Harris. And obviously, Wall Street loves Joe Biden, too. They're war whores, they're money whores, they're every kind of evil we've been warning you against for the last year and a half. And by we, I mean me and a few other people who have been taking up this cry. So Keaton goes on to criticize Biden and Kamala and then to laud the efforts of the essential workers that make this country work. He also points out that Time's readership did not elevate Kamala and Joe higher than essential workers. They chose essential workers first. In a year when so many ordinary people performed with such valiance, courage, and selflessness, Time Magazine still felt it necessary to overturn the will of their own dwindling readership and name these two would-be losers were it not for the once-in-a-lifetime apocalyptic circumstances under which the election took place, their person of the year. In a way, it makes perfect sense. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are the creations of traditional establishment media institutions whose influence, though still unfortunately sufficient to anoint their chosen candidates, wanes with each passing day. 
The people are turning on them and they know it. In this case, they could see it in their own polling, but they cannot and will not give up and give in. They simply must, perhaps for their own sanity's sake, maintain their veneer of prestige as long as possible, even as their once distinguished magazines are reduced to glorified brochures that can barely pay for their own production. Ooh. For tradition's sake, they just had to crown Uncle Joe and Queen Kamala, but Black Lives Matter and frontline essential workers are the real heroes of 2020. To quote our outgoing president, we know it, they know it, everyone knows it. I hope you all are having a lovely Christmas. I want to thank you so much for your comments underneath each of the episodes. Keep them coming. I love reading them every day. I'm going to start releasing the show later in the day now because one of our dear viewers and listeners told me that it was difficult to find the show because notifications were being buried. So if you're part of the regular crew, look for the releases on weekdays to be 2 p.m. and on weekends, 9 a.m. And in the meantime, we'll keep stirring the pot and causing trouble.